Why don't we begin with a prayer? Heavenly Father, we, we come before you with those hearts that you look into and you know that there's part of our heart that um, is really struggling and needs your spirit to come in and to change it and shape it and breathe new life into it. And there's part of our heart that longs for you and wants to hear your word um, and to follow you. Lord, we, we bring our whole heart to you this morning and pray that you guide our heart and that you look favorably on us with your grace. And as we turn to your word, that you would um, give us light this morning, that you would give us the words of life this morning. Through Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Well, welcome to the Bible in a year. Um, one thing that I failed to mention earlier is... Uh, parents, if you've got kids, we want you to be able to go through the Bible in a year with your kids, and we have a Bible for you. We have weekly questions for you to um, ask your kids, have a conversation with your kids throughout this uh, this program. And so today, if you're a parent and you got a kid, we have a limited number of Bibles today. We'll have more that are coming in. But first come, first serve. If you go down to the Children's check-in after the worship service. I grab a Bible. If you don't get one of the ones from today, pick one up next week. But grab a Bible. Grab uh, questions to go over with your kids um, for this week. Um, that's at the children's check-in station right after the worship service. So one of the one of the goals this year is for us to um, to understand the storyline of of the whole Bible. That's that's goal one. Goal two to see how the different books and parts of the Bible fit into that overstory line. And goal three, I think this is the most exciting um, part, is to see how your story is a part of the story of uh, the Bible, God's story, as he unveils it through the Scriptures. And uh, your story is included in God's story. Um, today we're going to start at the very beginning, Genesis 1 and 2. To some degree, you may feel like you have to get a buckle up your seatbelt because we're going to fly through um, a lot of thick, rich uh, scripture from Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1, um, I, I looked at my, my preaching calendar over the last several years, and I've preached on Genesis 1, I think, every year since 2017. Um, and... Why is that? It wasn't planned. It's, there's just so many important things in Genesis chapter 1. And um, I know this congregation, you've got a lot of very biblically insightful people here that have studied Genesis 1 long and hard. And, and um, I'm just going to try to pull out one, what I think is one of the most important truths from uh, Genesis chapter 1. So we're going to fly through Genesis chapter 1. We have to roll up our sleeves a little bit. It's going to feel like a Bible study to some degree. have lots of PowerPoint slides. We're going to burn out the computer upstairs um, with all the PowerPoint slides as we go through that. But in order to help us through our Bible study of Genesis 1 and 2, um, I want to give kind of the high-altitude roadmap that we're going to go through today. Um, there are three statements God's purpose, Adam's purpose, and your purpose. That's what we're going to go over today. I want you to get those in your head, so please read those aloud with me. God's purpose, 
Adam's purpose and my purpose. My purpose, your purpose. Now, God's purpose is different. We cannot think of God's purpose as we can Adam's, mine, yours. Uh, God reveals his purpose through all that he does. We don't necessarily get to do that. God reveals his purpose for us as we look at God's word. God gets to come up with his own purpose, and God gets to come up with your purpose, and God gets to come up with my purpose. So we're going to look at these uh, purposes. Let's talk about God's purpose. So here's the lightning-fast overview of Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at the six days of creation. Um, Day 1, God said, let there be light. And you knew what happened. There was light. God called the day, the light day. And he called the the darkness uh, night. And it's interesting. Some people have noticed, well, why did God call the light day? That's kind of interesting. Why not call the light light? Instead, God took something light and he translated it into a a time statement, a time name called the light day. He called uh, the darkness, not dark, but night. Day two. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. So what did God do in day two? God made the sky. God made the sea, the seas, below the sky. And day three, God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let the dry ground appear. God called the dry ground land. Now, the one thing I want us to notice about Genesis chapter 1 is this parallel that happens between the first three days and the second set of three days, days 4, 5, and 6. Day 4, what does God do? Verse 14, God said, let there be... Let's get day... Next slide. There we go. Day 4, God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night... And let them serve as signs to mark the sacred times and days and years. So we see this correlation between day one and day four. God creates the light so that there can be day and night, so that there can be sacred times and years. Day five, what does God do? Look at verse 20. Well, I don't have verse 20 on here, um, but listen to verse 20. God said, let the water team with living creatures. That team means to be abundantly fertile, for there to be fish, birds everywhere. Let birds fly above the earth and across the vault of the sky. And day six, what does God do? Verse 24 says, God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kind. So livestock and animals on the ground, wild animals. And then verse 26, God said, let... Us make mankind in our image, so that they may rule over the birds and the fish and the wild animals on on the land. So do you see this pattern? Let's go back to that that slide. Uh, Do you see that pattern that exists between days 1, 2, and 3, and days 4, 5, and 6? Creation, and then its function, the light, 
to mark time, the sea and the sky to be a home for fish and birds, um, and the land to be a home for animals and humans. Now, there's a lot of great things to see in Genesis chapter 1. I think one of the most important things to see in Genesis 1 about the creation account is this. The creation story... Do I have a slide for this? There it is. The creation of creation stories in Genesis do not so much describe how God created, but describe how God created with purpose. Okay? Those verses don't describe so much the exact process of creation, but rather how God created with purpose. Several years ago, my daughter Kate, my middle child Kate, she received a Christmas present um, from my parents. It was a jewelry box, and she opened up the package. There it was. My youngest daughter Elizabeth, who was four at the time, looked at it, had no idea what it was. She didn't ask, what is that? She didn't ask, where did it come from? The question she asked was, what does it do? And the ancient people of God, the ancient inhabitants of our world, were much more concerned with something's purpose than how something came to be. Genesis 1 is describing the purpose of God's creation. So I want you to keep that in mind as we now go through Genesis chapter 2. This is the kind of the longer scripture we're going to read today, Genesis 2. Keep that in mind that, that God is unveiling in these first two chapters purpose of his creation. So if you have your Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 17. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon, and it winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, and it winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, and it runs along the east side of Asher, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. There ends the reading. I want us to think about the work that God gave Adam. Um, one day I saw my neighbor in his driveway. I asked him, how's work going? And he said, well, they don't call it work for nothing. 
we have this love-hate relationship with our work sometimes. And we can think of Adam working hard in the garden, digging in the, in the soil, sweating in the sun. Was that what it was like? Did he have this bad attitude with work? Is that what work is about, this love-hate relationship with it? Like God said, hey, this stuff won't grow by itself, Adam. Get in there and work your tail off. Um, is that the nature of work, to get us to just work our tails off and be gripey? Um, was God's goal for the garden just to be food supply? Was God's goal for the garden just to be a shelter for human beings and maybe animals? Or is there something bigger going on in the garden? And is there something bigger going on with the work that God gave Adam? So in order to get at that, we're going to have to see how this story that we just read connects with two other passages in the Bible. I told you this is going to be like a Bible study today. Roll up your sleeves. I'm going to compare Genesis 2 with two other passages from the Bible. But I think it's so important to see this comparison to get at what God is doing, the big picture of God's story in the Bible. So the first of the stories we're going to compare with what we just read is Revelation chapter 22. And when we look at these three together, you're going to go, oh, I get it, I see it, I see it. Um, So let's look at Revelation 22, last chapter in the Bible, starting with verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Yes, the bigger blue words are important. God showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And down the middle of the the great uh, street of the city, and on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. Now, the throne of God in this garden in Revelation 22, is very important. Why is it? Well, if you look back one chapter in the Bible, I think this is one of the most important verses in all of Scripture to understand the story of the Bible. Revelation 21, verse 3, says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is where? Way up high where we can't get to it? No, it is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. The throne of God is in the garden because God wants to dwell with his people there. And the word for dwelling place in in Revelation 21 verse 3 is really interesting. It's the word tabernacle. This really reads, look, God's tabernacle is now among the people. Now, if you're newer to Christianity... Or the Bible, you may think, well, what's a tabernacle and what's the big deal with that? Well, the big deal is that the tabernacle for the ancient people of God was the elaborate tent that God said, make this elaborate tent and I will dwell in that tent so that I can be with you. It was the center of all of the worship of the ancient Israelites. It was a temple of God. Keep that in mind. So the other scripture we're going to look at is Ezekiel chapter 47. Ezekiel was an Old Testament prophet. God showed him a vision of the, I think, the ends, ends of time, starting in verse 1. The man brought me back 
to the entrance to where? Entrance to the temple. And I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. Notice that the the water was a river that was flowing east. And Ezekiel explains something really important about this. He, he says that it flows to the, to the Dead Sea. So you keep reading a little bit. You get to where it flows into the Dead Sea. Why does the Dead Sea have that name? Why is it called the Dead Sea? It's too salty for stuff to live in it. Every, there's no creatures in it. It's too salty. Everything's dead in the Dead Sea. But look at verse 8. What happens when this river flows into the Dead Sea? When it empties into the sea, the salty water becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures. Where have we seen teeming creatures before? Hmm. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because the water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So the river Where the river flows, everything will live. Wherever this river flows, there is life. What what do we call such a river as that? It's the river of life. Check out verse 12. Fruit trees of all kinds will, will grow on both banks of the river. Their fruit will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary, it flows to them and the water of life is flowing. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Do you see something very interesting? This common connection between Ezekiel 47, Revelation 22, and Genesis 2. You might be like, no, I don't see it. So let me show it to you. Um, Ezekiel 47, there's the river of life. The river of life in Genesis 22. It's flowing from the east. It's the water of life. There's fruit trees. There's crops of fruits. There's, there's leaves for healing. There's swarms of creatures. Now let's, it's the temple. Let's look at Genesis chapter 2. The river's flowing from the east. There's crops of fruit. There's the tree of life in Genesis chapter 2. The water's flow, watering the, the river's watering the trees, swarms of creatures. What is Genesis chapter 2 describing? It's describing God's temple. A place of the special dwelling of God. You see what's going on here. Ezekiel and Revelation describe the ultimate purpose God had for the Garden of Eden. It wasn't just to be a place where food grew, wasn't just to be a, wasn't just to be a, a shady spot for Adam. It was to be his temple. God's goal for the Garden of Eden was to be a temple of God's presence. That's God's goal for the Garden. That was his purpose for the Garden. God's intent was if you were in the garden, you would be in his presence. You would feel his presence. You would see his presence. You would know his presence. And God didn't want the garden to remain small, but to grow. Remember what God commanded the, uh, the first people in, in Genesis chapter 128? Didn't read it earlier, but you know the story. 
God says to the humans that he creates, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now, it's safe to assume that the whole earth wasn't garden-like. God wanted the garden, this temple of his, to grow, to spread throughout the earth. And you may ask, well, how do you know that God wanted the garden and his presence to spread throughout the whole earth? Well, if you look a bit later, one of the other Old Testament prophets, Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 14, in it God tells his purpose, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord As the waters cover the sea. How much do the waters cover the sea? Last time I checked, all of it. How much does God say his glory, the knowledge of his glory will cover the earth? All of it. God's plan is to fill this earth with his glory, with his presence. So God's intent was that the beauty of the garden would point to him. God's intent was that the provision, the life that was just abundant in the the garden would point to him. Human beings, as they walked in this garden, would, would point to him. They would see him. So the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, and the very end of the Bible, Revelation 22, point to God's relentless purpose. Dallas Willard uh, puts that purpose like this. God's aim in human history is the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons with himself included in that community as its primary sustainer, giving us the river of life, the tree of life, and most glorious inhabitant. That's God's purpose. Now let's talk about Adam's purpose. Uh, God included Adam in his purpose. God gave Adam a story. He gave Adam a job. Genesis 2 verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? To work it and take care of it. Now those words work and take care um, have a very particular meaning, especially when they appear together like they do there in Scripture. Yeah, yeah, Adam had to do some work to get the garden to grow, probably had to get his hands dirty a little bit, grab a shovel, prune some trees, do something, some manual labor to get the garden to grow. But these words mean much more than that. Those words together, they describe the duties of the priests in the temple. The clearest example of this is Numbers chapter 3, verse 7. I'll look at this verse. This is about the priests. They are to perform duties for him, for God, and for the whole community at the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, by doing the work of the tabernacle. And those words, perform duties, work. The same words that God gave to Adam, work and take care of the garden. Priests were to keep the temple working properly for the worship of God. Those words together describe the role of priests. So when Adam, when God says to Adam, work it, take care of the garden, I want you to see he's meaning so much more than just, now get to work, get dirty. 
He's saying, Adam, you're, you're the priest. You're my priest in this temple. So here's the point. God's purpose for Adam was to be a priest. He was to cult- cultivate the garden, get it to grow, this temple to grow, and thereby show the world the glory of God. Okay, that's some deep Bible study. The Bible study portion is now over. Give yourself a, a round of applause for enduring that. And Lee up in the, in the, uh, the visual booth. Good job, Lee. Let's bring it down home to us now. Talked about God's purpose and Adam's purpose. Now what about your purpose? What is your purpose? Let me ask you a question. What makes you think that you're any different than Adam? After all, Adam was just a gardener. Oh, yeah, and a priest. And you may think, well, I'm, I'm just a teacher. I'm just a student, um, a school slave. No, you're just, just a student? Is that all that you are? No. I'm just a salesperson, just a social worker. No. You're not just that. You are priests. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light to help this world see God's presence. So in your job, you are a teacher, you are an engineer, you are a scientist, you are a salesperson, you are a supervisor, you are a caregiver, and you are a priest, just like Adam was a gardener and a priest. Now what does that mean? It means that God intends you to help fill this world with his presence and to know his presence. The world is God's temple. And he wants you to serve as his priest and participate in, in his work of cultivating this global, global temple of his. So tomorrow morning, Monday, when you get up, think, okay, I'm, I'm a priest. I'm not just going to the office. I'm not, just, I'm not just doing my work here at the house. I'm a priest of God. Hopefully that will help you get up with a little more spring in your step. But how do we go about serving as, as priests? All right, John Walton, he's a professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College. And, um, and he describes three very general um, tasks of the priest serving in the temple in very non-technical language. Um, the priest, one, they were to keep the space pure. General task of a priest, keep the space pure. Um, so in the temple, the priest had to keep the, the, the space um, ritualistically pure. Don't forget Jesus, when he was in the temple, he kept the space pure by overturning the money changers in the temple. Two, the priest was to maintain an environment and routine of worship. So the priest had to keep the animal sacrifices going, 
keep the religious rites for the annual festivals going. And three, the priests were to monitor the status of the inhabitants of the sacred space. So the priests had to be aware of the congregants and be aware um, of things that would make them either morally unclean or ritualistically unclean. Adam was to do these three things in the garden. He was to keep the space pure. Next week, we're going to look at the story of the serpent of the garden. Adam was supposed to help drive out that serpent, keep the space pure. Adam was supposed to ensure obedience to God's command not to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam was supposed to help grow the beauty of the the garden to maintain an environment of worship so that people would experience the provision of God and the beauty of God and worship God. And Adam was to monitor the, the inhabitants. He was supposed to watch over Eve and protect her from the influence of the serpent. He was supposed to see himself, all the humans in the, in the garden. God's intent was that they would see themselves as a part of this community. That they belonged, and they were belonging to protect one another, to help one another. So that's Adam. How about you? So I want you to think about these three priestly duties. In your note sheet, there's, there's a line under each one of them. Today or tomorrow, I encourage you today or tomorrow to spend five, ten minutes thinking through how you can live out these duties wherever you are tomorrow, wherever you are on your daily basis, whether that's in an office, whether that's in a school, whether that's in your home, Um, so, three things. How can you keep the space pure? Your space pure. That means to do your job with integrity and ethics. That's maintaining purity of the space. How can you raise those values, integrity and ethics, at your place of work, in your current work? And I want you to think, do you know that your work is important? Whatever it is, it is important. God is building this community of interconnectedness and interdependence. And my work often depends on your work, and your work can depend on my work. And as we support one another, we are mutually benefiting one another through our work. Second question, how can you maintain an environment and routine of worship in your space? You may have to think creatively about this one. doesn't necessarily mean that you bring your guitar and lead praise songs at your office. It could, possibly. Um, I remember some years ago, a woman in my church saying, Pastor Greg, I want to start a Bible study in my office. Can you, can you help me do that? And maybe, maybe that's one thing you can do to help maintain a space of worship, an environment of worship, or, or pray. Pray for your office or your work or your, your school. I think the thing to realize is um, the second point. It begins with you. How, you know, how can you maintain an environment and routine of worship? It's, it's your, your space. It begins with you. It's by you worshiping the Lord throughout your day. And you listen, God, how can I help grow this somehow in my space? Maybe it's looking out for the people in your space. 
Well, and that really gets to the last question, right? How can you monitor the inhabitants of your sacred space? Is there someone that you can think of that you need to reach out to in your sacred space? Is there something to watch out for? You know, you may not, really, you may not be there to be the watchdog um, for other sins. That might not be your primary role that God is calling you to be the watchdog for other people's sins. But maybe God's primary role for you there is to be the watchdog for other people's hurts and pains. God has you there to be an encourager, to lift someone up. And one final thought. I know this has been a long sermon. This might be the longest sermon of the entire year. One more thought. You may think, you know, I don't, I don't care much about my office. You might, I don't care much about my school. I don't know. Um, or you may think, yeah, you don't know what I have to put up with. <laughs> I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can be a priest there. I want you to think that you do have a priest, another priest that goes with you. Jesus is your high priest. Jesus knows what you go through. Jesus cares about your space. Jesus is the high priest. Who is, he's kept his space pure. He lived a sinless life so he could die for our sins. He maintains an environment of worship How? by walking with you. you. You know that you're never alone in your space. You have your high priest with you. He's walking with you. He monitors the inhabitants of his sacred space. And you're one of those inhabitants. And he knows you, and he loves you, and he cares for you, and he prays to his heavenly Father for you. If you ever feel like you're alone, you're not. You have your high priest with you. All right, let's pray. Almighty God, Lord, we live in your temple. We miss your presence so often. We pray that you open up our spiritual eyes that, and you would use one another to help us to see you wherever we go. If we're feeling lonely, if we're feeling afraid right now, Lord, help us to know we have our faithful high priest who will not fail in his duties. Jesus, thank you for being our priest and helping us to walk with you and helping us to worship you with our hearts and knowing the pains that we go through and loving us through that. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.